0: Good evening. My name is Dan Peek. Welcome to the WDRT Monthly Review, a look back at this past month's news stories for December 2022. I am recording in a studio at the Mead Public Library, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, 24 hours ahead of broadcast. This is my final broadcast. So it's December 2022 and broader. My view of news, it's not about answers, it's about questions, and most importantly, what are our values? We are all open to bias and influence. It's increasingly important to be both more open and more discerning. So here's my list of topics. Trump. Seven years ago, Trump rode down his golden escalator at his New York Fifth Avenue Trump Tower to announce his candidacy for president. Trump describes his famous elevator scene with, it looked like the Academy Awards. Make America Great Again, MAGA. MAGA was Trump's pitch. MAGA morphed from a noisy minority of Republicans into the mainstream of the Republican Party. MAGA started with Trump casting Mexico and Mexicans as the other, as authoritarians do, inventing problems only they can solve. Trump claimed Mexico was sending immigrants to the U.S., stating, When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending the best. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with them. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. The initial launch received tepid support, but enthusiasm built as Trump fueled a virtuous circle of hate and media hanging on every pronouncement. He speaks for me. He's a successful businessman. He won't govern like he campaigns. He'll be presidential. Only the first of which proved true. He was not a successful businessman. His taxes show Trump turning Trump senior's large fortune into a small fortune. His brand of governance proved to be more vicious than his campaign, but it turned out Trump did speak for a large constituency, all with grievances. Seven years later, Brenda Wineapple has this headline for the New York Times this week. Donald Trump is now forever disgraced. Her explanation references the December 17th, January 6th committee criminal referrals against Trump on at least three charges. Here's Wineapple's comment. These unprecedented referrals suggest that Mr. Trump, who as president, took an oath to uphold the Constitution, not only violated that oath, but also committed a series of specifically indictable crimes. One of these referrals for the crime of inciting an insurrection is the most stunning, the most unpredictable and most crucial for its implications and its remedy, which includes barring the former president from holding political office. Now, whatever the Department of Justice decides to do, and whatever special counsel Jack Smith discovers or determines, the January 6th committee has achieved what the impeachment of Mr. Trump could not, a serious referrals that caps an expansive and heartrending investigation into the abuse of power, the obstruction of Congress, and the aiding and abetting of a rebellion condoned, if not designed, by an American president. Wineapple drew an analogy to President Andrew Johnson, who was impeached but never saw himself as being disgraced. Trump will be remembered as lawless, indicted or not, and will be disgraced in perpetuity as Andrew Johnson should have been. Speaking of those committee referrals, here is how the committee co-chairs, citing Trump as the central cause for the attack on the U.S. Capitol, explained the actions of the committee. Chair Benny Thompson, Democrat in Mississippi, in a forward to the committee report, our country has come too far to allow a defeated president to turn himself into a successful tyrant by upending our democratic institutions, fomenting violence, and, as I saw it, opening the door to those in our country whose hatred and bigotry threaten equality and justice for all Americans. Vice Chair Liz Cheney, Republican Wyoming, added, the committee recognizes that this investigation is just the beginning. It is only an initial step in addressing President Trump's effort to remain in office illegally. Prosecutors are considering the implications of the conduct we describe in this report as our voters. Trumpsters were frequently described as a B-team, a gang that couldn't shoot straight, but the shockingly broad plan and the narrow miss of the attempted coup should serve as a wake-up call. Here is history professor and blogger Heather Cox Richardson's synopsis of the committee report. Former President Donald Trump, before the 2020 election, planned to declare he had won, even if he actually lost, and how he executed that plan. It then laid out how he maintained he had won, even as his own lawyers and campaign advisors repeatedly assured him that the conspiracy theories on which he was relying were false. It showed how he contested Democratic candidate Joe Biden's victory counts in court, uh, losing 61 times, and then pressured state officials to find the votes he needed to win. When those attempts to hand him the election all failed, he turned to trying to steal the election through pressuring state officials to create false slates of electors that chose him rather than Biden and then pressured the Department of Justice to get states to turn to those electors by alleging falsely that the department thought the election was fraudulent. Its leaders had said repeatedly in no uncertain terms that the election was not fraudulent. When Justice Department leaders refused, he tried to put a loyalist, Jeffrey Clark, at the head of the department to do as he wished. He was stopped only when the department leaders threatened to resign as a group. That left him with a plan hatched by right-wing lawyer John Eastman. The plan hinged on the outrageous idea that the vice president, in his capacity as the person to oversee the counting of electoral ballots, could decide not to count the legitimate ballots for which Trump loyalists had submitted competing ballots, enabling him single-handedly to throw the election to Trump over the wishes of the American voters. Eastman itself admitted this plan was illegal. And yet it was Trump's last hope to look like he was playing by the rules. When Trump's Vice President Mike Pence refused to participate in the scheme, Trump went to his final card, his Trump card, if you'll forgive me, his base. Exactly two years ago, on December 19th, 2020, when it became clear that his campaign lawyers had lost their legal challenges and the real electors had filed their electoral slates, Trump tweeted to the supporters to urge them to come to Washington, D.C. on January 6th, the day before those electoral votes would be counted and confirm Biden's election to the White House, falsely claiming what he knew to be untrue. This was statistically impossible for him to have lost the election. He told his supporters, big protests in D.C. on January 6th, be there, will be wild. Thank you to Cox Richardson. Committee member Representative Jeremy Raskin, Democrat Maryland, cautioned, the best predictor of a successful coup is a recently failed one, where the plotters learn the weaknesses in the existing structure and then uh, regroup to try again. There must be no second chance for the coup plotters, which is what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is all about. Brenda Wineapple's reference to the impeachment of former President Andrew Johnson explains Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, ratified just after the Civil War, allows for disqualification from holding office. I do have a nomination for hero. If the committee moved the needle to paint an accurate picture of the insurrection and capture public attention, and they did... That hero is former White House aide Cassidy Hudson, whose appearance on one of the live broadcasts of committee proceedings was described as a moral reckoning that jarred the public view. This from the Financial Times, she told the committee, you know, I did feel like it was my obligation and my duty to share what she knew, because I think that if you're given a position of public power, it's also your job, your civic responsibility to allow the people to make decisions for themselves. And if no one's going to do that, like somebody has to do it. Hutchinson's moral reckoning stands in stark contrast to a court filing recently that revealed Fox News Channel personality Sean Hannity pushed the idea on air that Trump had won the 2020 election, even though, as he said under oath, I did not believe it for one second. This month, Trump arguably leader of the Republican Party went so far as to call for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Trump posted on social media in his trademark, Block Capitals, unprecedented fraud requires unprecedented cure, and his party leaders went silent. I could spend the entire 30 minutes on Trump alone, and he'd love that, but the more important part is about what happens next. Turning back to Trump's, it's like the Academy Awards remark, Olivia Nuzi, writing for The New Yorker this month, picked up on Trump's fascination with the movie Sunset Boulevard, She contrasts Trump's 2015 announcement with his 2022 announcement, low energy, insular, the smallness of his current world. Trump once showed biographer Tim O'Brien Sunset Boulevard. In one scene, Norma Desmond cried, Those idiot producers, those imbeciles. Haven't they got any eyes? Have they forgotten what a star looks like? I'll show them. I'll be up there again, so help me. Trump leaned over O'Brien's shoulder and whispered, Is that an incredible scene or what? Just incredible. Is there a similarity? A washed up star locked away in a mansion from the 20s, afraid of the outside world, afraid it will remind him that time has passed? Newsy offers this alarming comment. A former White House official said, I think if he's even our nominee, we may lose our country. Even if I don't believe he can win a general again, I think he could burn down the country. I think it's that dangerous. I'm terrified. The current staff, this person said, reflects this. No decent person wants anything to do with him, the former official said. I think he knows he's got an effing F-team and he's embarrassed by it. Still, this person admitted the F-team may have a point. There are so many gross opportunists. The minute it looks like he'll win, they'll all be back. Even as a candidate for the Republican nomination, Trump has the potential to inflict far more damage. But don't cry for Trump. He announced on social media that he has full immunity from prosecution over the January 6th violent assault on the Capitol. Biden's surprising first two years, this from Russell Berman for The Atlantic. In less than two years, Biden has chaotically ended a war in Afghanistan while struggling to bring the nation fully out of a -a two-and-a-half-year pandemic. Domestically, he's pursued nothing less than a transformation of the American social safety net with an agenda comprising a dizzying number of progressive policy goals. Biden has accomplished quite a lot of them perhaps more than most political observers expected with such narrow Democratic majorities on Capitol Hill. Some of his legislative moves on infrastructure and clean energy manufacturing, for example, have even been bipartisan victories. But Biden has also failed to achieve many of his most progressive priorities, which have fallen victim to a combination of lockstep GOP opposition and crucial defections in his own party. The signing of three enormous bills, the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package The roughly $1.1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure law and this summer's client and health spending bill made Biden's first two years among the most productive of any president in the past half century. The initial pandemic bill, which is also known as the American Rescue Plan, was about the size of Barack Obama's two biggest legislative achievements, his initial economic stimulus package and the 2010 Affordable Care Act combined. The legislation sent $1,400 checks to Americans across the country, nearly doubled the child tax credit, shored up state budget accounts, and funded testing, treatment, and vaccines to fight the pandemic. The strategically named Inflation Reduction Act is actually the largest climate bill in U.S. history and allows Medicare to negotiate the prices of certain prescription drugs for the first time. Beyond those headline bills, Biden also more quietly amassed a bevy of smaller legislative wins, often with bipartisan support. The modest gun safety bill expanded background checks, although not universally, made it easier to prosecute illegal gun trafficking, and provided federal funding for the so-called red flag laws. Congress also passed the CHIPS Act to boost domestic production of semiconductors, a long-stalled Postal reform bill, substantial military aid for Ukraine, and a reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, all with fairly broad support from both parties. Biden's executive actions on student loan forgiveness and pardons for marijuana possession answered a pair of progressive demands. I will add to Berman's list of accomplishments. In the last few days, Congress passed a $1.7 trillion funding bill averting the risk of a government shutdown, which includes reforms to the Electoral Count Act, a measure to clarify the role of the vice president as purely ceremonial, as a presiding officer in the congressional vote certification, and raised the threshold for an objection to 20% of the members of each chamber, Presently, a single congressman can raise an objection. The act eliminates one dimension of a repeat effort to overturn an election as Trump and his allies attempted on January 6th. Biden's legislative results were accomplished in a variety of bipartisan coalitions. While Democrats and Speaker Pelosi had a narrow advantage in the House, Senate Majority Leader Schumer had a 50-50 split between Democrats and Republicans, Democrats, including Senator Joan Manchin, Democrat with Virginia, uh, offered no support for renewable energy, and Senator Kirsten Sinema, who was averse to any new taxes directed at companies, the rich, private equity, hedge funds. Sinema announced she was leaving the Dem party and would be recognized as an independent. Sinema would keep her committee positions by caucusing with Democrats, meaning the party will still hold a one-seat advantage on the committee next year, giving them new flexibility over legislation and committee subpoena power. The one-seat advantage is, of course, the result of Senator Raphael Warnock's Democrat Georgia runoff election victory over Republican candidate Herschel Walker. Dem control of the Senate is now 51-49 with Sinema, King, Independent Maine, and Sanders, Independent Vermont, caucusing with Democrats. The passage of the omnibus bill in the House drew the support of nine Republicans, seven of whom are leaving Congress in January, and their replacements, along with the rest of the Republicans, will now control the House following the result of the November midterm elections. The passage of the omnibus, Biden and the White House claim success on a promise to work across the aisle to reach consensus. As imperfect as our legislative process is, it boggles the mind to think what a repeat Trump controlled White House and Congress would inflict. The Supreme Court ruling to eliminate a woman's right to choose in matters of her own health care would become a small part of the assault on the rights of any groups deemed other by MAGAs. Inflation in the economy. Most of the world struggled with the worst inflation of 40 years, peaking close to 10% of the U.S., the Eurozone, and the U.K. The Eurozone was especially at risk due to increased energy costs and disruption in supplies as a result of Russian President Putin's invasion of Ukraine and his decisions to curtail the flow of cheap natural gas to Western Europe. The U.S. Federal Reserve and other central banks employed a pattern of sharp increases in interest rates to tighten the flow of money and spending. Sadly, the impact is borne heavily by the middle and lower class, and as these measures add pressure against wage increases and increase unemployment. While inflation in the U.S. may have peaked, the U.S. has also experienced favorable reports of economic growth and growth in new jobs, resulting in even harsher measures by the Fed, increasing the fear of recession in 2023. Some are experiencing inflation for the first time in their working careers. While we have all either learned or relearned the fear of inflation, the same people most affected by the lesson of higher prices, the wage earners and those on fixed income, are also the same people that will carry the burden of the cure in the form of wage pressure and higher unemployment. There are other economic pressures. Workers 65 and older are increasingly reluctant to rejoin the workforce. The conclusion is they won't. This added pressure of filling jobs helps drive inflation. Manufacturers, especially automotive, are re-evaluating supply chains. COVID caused disruptions, shortage, and led to increased prices, especially with electronic components. Manufacturers are seeking alternatives to production in China, and the CHIPS Act is a direct response, a move to invest in domestic production of semiconductors. Here's one example of how these factors can come together and who suffers. Shortages, sticker prices, and a move to electronic vehicles, EVs, has driven the closure of the Belvedere, Illinois, Jeep Cherokee plant. In 2019, a plant in Belvedere, Illinois, produced about 190,000 of the sport utility vehicles, employing close to 5,000 people and operating three shifts a day. Since then, sales have fallen. The factory laid off the third shift and then the second. This year, it is on track to make fewer than 20,000 vehicles. The 57-year-old plant would shut down indefinitely at the end of February, putting 1,350 people out of work. Kristen Dzicek of a policy advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, who focuses on the automotive industry, said it's tough keeping plants operating at full capacity. It's been hard while companies have to put out money, a lot of money, for the shift to EVs. While forecasts are for a smoother economic road ahead in 2023, it's important we understand that disruption and economic pain for wage earners comes in many forms. Russia invades Ukraine. Putin is now telling Russians that his 10-month-long invasion of the Ukraine is likely to be a long-lasting war. Putin admits the invasion he thought would end in a week is set to go on for a long time. Putin has little intention of climbing down from its maximalist goals, which essentially amount to destroying Ukraine in its current form, even as Russia struggles to gain ground, according to former senior Kremlin officials. Putin purports to be open to peace talks, but only on the condition that all of his demands are met. The U.S. and its European allies are continuing to back Ukraine, which has made the recovery of its lost territory a compulsory preconditions for talks. I would venture to say that things could be a heck of a lot less complicated for the Russians in Ukraine if they would just get the heck out and just take their troops out of the country, U.S. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said this week. Short of that, which obviously doesn't seem to be something that Mr. Putin is willing to engage as an idea of simplifying issues in Ukraine, we are going to continue to make sure we can support Ukraine's efforts to defend itself. Putin also indicated Russia's domestic crackdown on dissent and heightened preparations for possible threats would continue. Russia has made discrediting the armed forces, essentially any unauthorized criticism of the war, illegal, while Putin declared martial law in the four annexed regions and raised alert levels in eight other provinces on the Ukrainian border. Meanwhile, this week, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky made an impassioned plea before Congress and the American people to keep up support for Kyiv as it fights Russian's invasion, thanking lawmakers and the U.S. public for broad and bipartisan support. And your support is crucial, not just to stand in such fight, but to get to the turning point to win on the battlefield. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. Speaking in English, Zelensky made a variety of historical references, including comparing Ukrainian soldiers in Donbass to Americans who fought in the Second World War's Battle of the Bulge. Framing Kyiv's fight as a global one and an important moment, and a struggle to preserve the world order, part of his attempt to shore up support from a critical ally in his first trip out of the Ukraine since Russia invaded in February. With heavy Russian casualties and a currently static line of defense, Russia's strategy now focuses on destroying Ukrainian infrastructure. All of Ukraine's thermal and hydroelectric power plants have been damaged by recent waves of Russian strikes targeting a country's power grid, Ukraine's prime minister said on Sunday. Russia has fired more than 1,000 missiles and drones at Ukrainian power infrastructure facilities since October 10th, the chairman of Ukraine's national utility, Vladimir Kurdish said at a news conference. Last week, Russian attacks on the country's energy supply came on one of the coldest days this season with low temperatures in the 20s, uh, Fahrenheit. Targets of the strikes suggested that Russia had hoped to cause a blackout of the country's energy system and create as much suffering as possible. Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, has defended Moscow's attacks calling infrastructure a legitimate military target. The United Nations has said that such strikes could amount to war crimes. In spite of yet another record of missile strikes yesterday, Thursday, with a launch of 69 cruise missiles, Russia is said to be running out of missiles. The Center for European Policy Analysis (CEPA), a DC-based policy group, suggests that the U.S. is spending 5.6% of its defense budget to destroy nearly half of Russia's conventional military capability, which seems like an incredible investment. There should be no both sidesism over Ukraine. Putin is not prepared to stop. The Trump story and the Putin story are connected. In November, the New York Times reported that Putin's quid pro quo to support Trump's 2016 election campaign was Trump's delivery of part of Ukraine, namely Mirapol, the richest industrialized city in Ukraine and a strategically located city as a gateway to the Crimea. COVID new cases, hospitalizations and death across the U.S. are low but not non-existent. COVID deaths still average 400 per day. Case counts across the WDRT listener area are encouragingly low. Vernon County is averaging about three new cases per day. On the other hand, China recently experienced a period of 40,000 new cases per day. Civil unrest in China over harsh lockdowns has resulted in loosening controls following a significant economic slowdown resulting from the harsh measures. There is also the opinion that China could no longer afford zero COVID enforcement. The World Bank offers... China's growth outlook is subject to significant risks stemming from the uncertain trajectory of the pandemic, of how policies evolve in response to the COVID-19 situation, and the behavioral responses of households and businesses. Meaning, no one knows exactly what to expect, but it could be bad in China, be it economic or COVID cases and deaths. And we know that the impact doesn't just stay in China. COVID is global, and we're all living with it. And sure enough, on Wednesday, the U.S. announced a requirement for all airline passengers coming from China to show negative COVID-19 tests as health experts fear the virus's unchecked spread across that country could imperil the world. I'll offer for two stories that show the contrast in values for how we move forward. I want to draw a comparison considering the question, what would Jesus do? One story is about a South Korean tour group whose van became stuck in the snow outside a house in Williamsville, New York, and this from the New York Times. Alexander Campania and his wife Andrea, lifelong residents of Buffalo, were ready to wait out the blizzard. On Friday at 2 p.m., with a snowstorm already swirling and snow rapidly piling up, making roads impassable, there was a knock at the door. Two men, part of a group of nine tourists of South Koreans that was traveling to Niagara Falls, asked for shovels to dig their passenger van out of a ditch. And so, an unlikely holiday weekend began, with the Campanias welcoming the travelers along with their driver as house guests. They became accidental innkeepers, said Mr. Capania, a 40-year-old dentist. Mr. Capania said the unexpected guests had been a delight. The second story is from CNN. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Republican, is accused of having several busloads of migrants dropped off in front of Vice President Kamala Harris's resident in Washington, D.C. on Christmas Eve in 18-degree weather. An initial two busloads were taken to local shelters, according to an administration official. More buses arrived outside the vice president's residence later on Saturday evening. A CNN team saw migrants being dropped off, with some migrants wearing only T-shirts in the freezing weather. They were given blankets and put on another bus that went to a local church. The arrivals included asylum seekers from Ecuador, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Peru, and Colombia, according to CNN. The buses were supposed to go to New York, but were diverted to D.C. due to the weather. Busloads of migrants have been arriving in Washington weekly since April. Governor Abbott abandoned children on the side of the road in below freezing temperatures on Christmas Eve without coordinating with any federal or local authorities, White House spokesperson Abdul Hassan said in a statement. Abbott is one of at least three Republican governors who have taken credit for busing or flying migrants north this year to protest the Biden administration's immigration policies. He previously confirmed in September that his state had sent buses to Harris's residents. These Republican governors are using human beings to stage their performative politics, while others offer a stark contrast and show compassion, helping people in need. Two final points. In Wisconsin, both parties are girding for an April election that will determine partisan control of the state's already politicized Supreme Court and either open or shut the door on a legal challenge to an impregnable Republican gerrymander of the state legislature. Republican extreme gerrymandering of the state House and state Senate in 2011 and again in 2021, locked in control of both chambers. In November, Democrats captured more than 46 percent of the two-party vote in races for the state assembly, yet they won only 35 of the chamber's 99 seats. Please vote. Lastly, Times 2022 Person of the Year, Vladimir Zelensky and the Spirit of Ukraine. Offering a succinct final commentary is beyond my ability. The challenges we face are enormous and seem to be stuck. We seem to be stuck reacting rather than acting proactively. Can we save ourselves? One party is committed to resisting all attempts to address these challenges, even resorting to cruelty. One example, to come full circle, the January 6th committee is now releasing transcripts of witness testimony and even a brief look at some of the content makes me feel ill. I offered at the onset my amazement at how broad the Trump-MAGA coup attempt was, but the transcripts will scare the hell out of anyone who takes the time to peruse them. But if the risk of living under authoritarianism is not a concern, there's a longer list with the climate crisis at the top of most listeners' lists. My hope has been to help open our eyes to the challenges with a better understanding of the challenges and of coming up with good solutions. Pointing fingers is not enough. It has been an honor to have the chance to do this program. I have appreciated every comment and suggestion. I want to thank Jim Hallberg and the WDRT family, and I want to offer a tip of my hat to Jim's mother for the encouragement. I wish all of us the best and Happy New Year.